Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 172, and I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. You know, I need you to know that this podcast is for you parents who want to understand your kids better and help your kids navigate a really tough time and to feel better about the job you're doing. So if you want to hear a show on a specific topic, write me. Well, today we're talking about how to form a closer relationship with your kids of any age and understand what they're going through so that you can help them. My guest is my friend and very smart colleague, Erica Komazar. She's a therapist in New York City and author of Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. Well, Erica, this is such an important topic we're going to be talking about today, which is mental health in kids. And you are the perfect guest for me because I want answers as much as a lot of the parents do. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Meg. There is a mental health crisis in the country, and I think it really rattles a lot of parents because they're afraid they're not going to see it in their own kids. They're afraid that the kids who is a friend of their kids might have it. But let's just talk basics. How have we come to the place where we have teenage boys walking into schools, shooting people? How has that evolved? Well, I mean, I think that it's um, a multivariable thing. And it's multivariable in the sense that it's not one contributing factor, but many contributing factors. And I always like to say that if kids go into adolescence with a very solid foundation, if they are deeply emotionally secure, uh, if they have really secure attachment at a very young age and they really have a good foundation, then they tend to do better when adolescence comes because adolescence is, as you, as you're a pediatrician, you know, physically a challenge, emotionally and hormonally a challenge. And then it has all of the added challenges that we as a society of uh, modern society have added on to adolescence, like social media, like intense competition, like fears of global warming. Mm-hmm. I could go on and on. Um, but, you know, we, we basically have made it very hard for our kids because we don't give them that solid foundation. We treat them as uh, precociously much older and more self-sufficient when they're very young. We want to project onto very young children that they are capable of more stress than they're capable of. So we don't give them that protection from stress. We don't give them that solid foundation of our emotional and physical presence in the early years. So they go into adolescence a little bit standing on one leg. Um, And so that is what's happening is that if we have two feet solidly planted in the ground and a good foundation, then we tend to be able to deal with adversity better. And there's a lot of adversity that these kids are facing. Um, People always come to me and say, is it the guns? And I say, well, the guns are a piece of it. But really, when you combine guns with mental illness, you'd say, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, And we are really looking at a mental health crisis in very uh, young children straight through adolescence because we're not really, and that's what my piece recently, I think that you asked me to come on about this is is really about, is that I think we are really failing our children as parents, Mm. um, that we don't really give them that solid foundation. So they are more capable of handling the adversity when adolescence hits. Yeah. 
Ouch. And I know that you know a lot about attachment and you've written about attachment with kids and how important it is in those first years of life, those first three years. So back us up if having a solid foundation of attachment is what helps kids um, come into adolescence in a healthier way. Talk to us about the mistakes we make in early childhood and how we can avoid those or correct for them. Well, I mean, if you think about attachment is actually not something people think of it as a very early experience of like the first few weeks or the first few months. But in fact, it's really the first three years. Um, it's an experience that takes place over that first three year period because it's the reinforcement of it over and over and over again, soothing babies when they're in distress and discomfort, being there physically and emotionally so they trust that their environment and where their environment will meet their needs and provide safety from stress. It's this reinforcement over and over again. I mean, I can't emphasize enough how important the first three years are, not just to their neurological development, but to their emotional development, because it's in those first three years that they feel most fragile. Um, and that reinforcement over and over again, that you are there to soothe them when they're in distress, mm -hmm. helps them to learn to regulate their emotions, which they then internalize at the end of that three-year period. Mm -hmm. It's that regulation that they carry into adolescence. So the ability yep. to soothe ourselves. Well, and to understand that there is safety, there's response, there is somebody there to to meet their needs, to um, that they can trust life, they can trust the world. So what do parents need to do to ensure that? So how is it that a parents can communicate that to their kids other than being with them all the time? But there are a lot of parents out there that need to work full time. So how do they navigate that? Um, well, if you have to work, I always say ensure that there is one person who is a surrogate, not multiple people, but one person who is your surrogate when you're not there. And that could be a grandmother. That could be an aunt. That could be a solid, solid babysitter who is there all the time and um, will be with you a long time, you know, like someone who you're going to keep on board for as many years as you possibly can. Um, and so that's far better than daycare. So that's the first thing. Um, and be as present as you can physically and emotionally, even if you have to work. So, you know, the mothers that are most successful at creating emotional security who work are, are and fathers are the ones who really understand that their time away from their children when they're working is their time away from their children. I mean, they still have to take time for themselves, but they may not go out on those dinner meetings at night. They may not go out and socialize at night. They may take a date night once a week. They, they may not go out after work. They may need to come home and provide that security. They may need to keep their kids up later at night so they can spend time with them and provide that moment-to-moment -moment soothing and distress. So there are things that, there's a whole part of my books that I talk about working and how you can create that emotional security. But, um, you know, we know that the least good option is daycare and the least good option is the projection onto children that the kids will be okay, no mm. matter what we do to them. We hear that. It's one of yeah. 
one of the phrases that drives me crazy, kids will be okay. They're very resilient. Well, maybe not, <laughs> you know, maybe they are going to struggle here. And I think one of the difficulties, I'm really trying to make parents feel guilty, but the problem with daycare too, is that it's not individual and you've got workers coming and going. And I think it's, um, can make kids very unstable. So yeah. let's look at the five or the eight year old now who, you know, may not have had a, a good time of attachment with a parent, but now the parent realizes, gee whiz, I need to do better. How can parents compensate for that so that adolescents will go better? I would say get some parent guidance. So it's never too late. As long as your children are still living with you, um, you still have an opportunity to repair things and turn things around. But I would get some parent guidance. Um, mm -hmm. And that will help you to reset your course, you know, and, and that means really treating your child in a way as you probably should have, but couldn't do earlier on, mm -hmm. uh, being present emotionally and physically, you know, I wrote two books, one about zero to three and one about adolescence, which is nine to 25. And there are great similarities in these age groups. Mm -hmm. Um, five to eight is not the lost period. Um, five to eight is also really critical. It's very critical that as much as possible, we're there for our kids. It's such a short window that we actually have influence on them. Uh, and once they leave our home, we've lost that influence, really. You know, even as adults, we still want that. I want to be able to trust that if I have a need or I'm ill, that my husband's going to be there to help me out or that one of my kids is going to be there. It's a real fundamental need that we all have. So yeah. moving forward into adolescence, is it pretty fair to say that the kids who are going to get into trouble, the common thread is that they haven't bonded well or they don't feel connected well to someone they can trust? Is that a fair statement? I mean, what, what it implies is that they are either incredibly sensitive to stress and or vulnerable. So the kids that do the least well in adolescence are the ones that are the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the longer I do this, the more I realize that parents don't always understand when their children are vulnerable. They don't mm -hmm. understand when their children are sensitive because kids can hide it well. Yeah. Um, and so it's knowing what to look for. I mean, I really stand by the idea that Parents can learn at any stage, but the more they learn, the better. And so I really believe in this model of parent guidance, which is um, get help from a really good therapist who can talk you through what to look for. Um, and, you know, and, and as much as I like to say, pick up one of my books and that will do it. I, having a therapist to talk to, to get a little guidance from can really help. But um, having said that, I think um, the vulnerability that starts early in childhood just intensifies in adolescence. So, you know, you, as I as I always say, adolescence is an adversity. So, if you're if you're layering adversity on adversity, what we're trying to do is buffer our children from some of the stress that we can buffer them from, and help them cope with the stress that we can't buffer them from. And I and the the, the words I would think of for parents are perspective and prioritizing. It's very easy to get wrapped up in what we're doing, our own lives, whether it's social or professional. And when our children need us, say, oh, wait, 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 I'm sorry, I'm busy right now, instead of dropping everything. And I think, you know, again, perspective and prioritizing. If we have perspective that 
when our children are vulnerable and they show that vulnerability to us, which isn't that often, but when they do show it to us, if we drop everything and pay attention to what's going on with them, we'll have much more success in helping them to regulate their emotions. But it's very easy to get into a mindset that our kids are fine and they can wait and you know, we're busy and this business meeting we have is really important and we got to go to our offices and, you know, we'll talk about it later. Or when our children, I use a uh, term in my second book, uh, when the door opens, we have to be there because if we're not there when the door opens, and I mean literally, but I also mean figuratively, right? I mean the metaphor when they let us in, even for a moment, and they show their vulnerability to us, we need to take advantage of that opportunity. It's an opportunity. If they shut the door on us, we can't just knock on the door later and say, right, we're here, ready to communicate, ready for business. It doesn't yeah. work like that. In the end, they are in control of their own defenses. So what should a parent look for when you talk about when a child shows their vulnerability? What kind of things should a parent look for and go, there it is? Any emotional dysregulation, any mood shifts, any, if your child is quieter, if your child seems more sad, if your child seems more angry, if your child seems more socially isolated or has gone into sort of more withdrawal or retreat, Um, Any of these are signs that if their school performance drops suddenly or seems to be declining, if there's any, any, any kind of self-destructive behavior that you're starting to observe, whether it's drinking more heavily or, you know, possibly smoking marijuana more intensely or, you know, anything that shows that they might be struggling with their emotions to regulate their emotions. Um, These are some of the signs. There's many more, obviously. Right. So let's move on. And and I think a lot of parents are anxious to hear what is it that causes a child to move in depression? What is depression all about? You know, you've talked about the poor connectivity, dysregulation of emotion. Are there some people that are just biologically wired or there's some people that are just psychologically uh, depressed? What's at the core of depression and how does that sort of take shape? So uh, there's research to show that many children are born sensitive. That means neurologically sensitive. They're born with something called a short allele on their serotonin receptors because serotonin is necessary for emotional regulation. So if you're shorted on your serotonin receptors, you're more susceptible to stress. And stress then causes things like depression, anxiety, symptoms of ADHD. And so, and then these things can lead to more serious uh, issues like personality disorders and such. But, but basically, uh, there, there are a number of children that are just more susceptible to stress. So yes, you can be more genetically inclined to depression and anxiety. They are reactions to stress, either external or internal. Um, And I like to say that depression, the difference between depression and anxiety is depression is preoccupation over past losses. Anxiety is preoccupation over future losses that have not and may never occur. Mm-hmm. But the common theme in both both of those is loss. Mm-hmm. And so anytime a child faces losses, disappointments, rejections, they are struggling 
to cope with those losses. And the kids who develop anxiety and depression are kids who are more fragile and are struggling to cope with those losses. So as parents, our responsibility is not to dismiss their losses. It is not to deny their losses. It is not to overly value their losses, but it is to help them to process the losses in their lives, which are adversities. And, you know, again, depression can also be, in addition to it being preoccupation over past losses, it can be internalizing aggressive feelings that were never processed. So I guess you could think of parents as um, at any age, whether it's zero to three or straight through to 25, mm-hmm. parents are, are like kidney dialysis. If you don't have a kidney, you go and you get kidney dialysis. It's something outside of your body that you need to help process the toxins. Say that parents are the outside digestive system for children's emotions until they can digest their own emotions. Parents, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Erica. I need to take a quick break, but don't leave. I'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Let's continue our chat with Erica Komisar. So you said earlier in the um, program that we're missing a lot, that parents are making a lot of mistakes. And I would, you know, say my kids are grown up, but boy, I sure did as well. So what are the fundamental mistakes, three of them, and how can we make sure we don't make those? I mean, you talked about being present for your kids, talking about recognizing vulnerability and attending to that. A lot of parents are very uncomfortable with that. And I'd like to hear you talk about, you know, particularly with boys, a lot of what I see is that boys are treated differently from girls emotionally. You know, it's like, don't say that and and that kind of a thing. So what are some things that parents can do proactively Mm -hmm. um, to really help their kids, say a 10, 11, 12 year old? Well, you said, what are some of the things, the, some of the most common mistakes? I mean, one of the most common mistakes is is projecting onto children at a very early age that they can handle more than they can. Um, in fact, kids can seem to handle more than they can, but they can't actually handle it. So if you think of all children as being neurologically fragile and dependent, dependent on us to help them with their emotions. And so when we force them into early separations, situations like daycare, when we force them into situations where we're not present enough to help them process their experiences and their thoughts and their feelings. When they're very young, what we're doing is we are basically projecting onto them that they are older and more precocious and more self-sufficient than they actually are. It's sort of what I call adult amorphizing children. That's one of the common mistakes because what happens is they develop something called defensive independence, which makes them seem like they're fine, but which leads to narcissistic disorders later on because they're not really fine. They just seem fine defensively. Um, So that kind of projection is a no-no. The other thing is when we dismiss or deny feelings, it's hard for parents to deal with their children's discomfort. Discomfort is hard for us to deal with for ourselves, but let alone seeing our children in pain or discomfort. We have to get better as parents at helping our children 
to cope with their discomfort, that means we can't protect them from all bad things that happen. We can't protect them from all disappointments, all rejection, but we can help them to process those feelings. Um, so we don't want to deny uncomfortable feelings. We want to embrace those uncomfortable feelings um, and help them to process those uncomfortable feelings. So that's another very common mistake uh, that parents make. And I guess on the other side, um, if we're overly anxious as parents, if we haven't dealt with our own losses, I'll say, parents have to deal with their own losses before they can raise healthy children. And that means if you have come from a background of divorce, if you, one of your parents has died or had suffered from mental illness or was an addict or um, even something as subtle as they were just not very connected parents. You know, there was a wonderful show called 13 Reasons Why that was very controversial. And if you really watch that show, um, I always said to the parents, you know, yes, the girl was angry at her friends, and that's one of the reasons she committed suicide. But if then you look at the relationship with the parents, you know, they had a lot of advisors on that show that were psychological advisors. And if you look at the relationship she had with her parents, her parents were in la-la land. They were very disconnected from this girl's pain and her reality because they they could not bear to see her pain. So they didn't see her pain. So, you know, we have to we have to deal with our own losses, our own pain, maybe of being left, of being abandoned. If we're going to help our children to deal with their pain, if we were teased and bullied as children and the defense we developed is that everything's fine and everything's going to be fine and our child's going to be the star and be popular, then we can't see that our child may be going through something similar. Or on the, on the converse, if we were teased and bullied as children, we project onto our child that they may be teased and bullied when they're fine. So we have to deal with our own depression and anxiety and our own losses before we can. So those are the three common mistakes I think that parents make. As a person who's seen thousands of kids grow up and you're the same way, you can see it happening. You know, you can see it just by the facial expressions and the interaction between kids and parents. But I find it really hard to talk to parents about it because they're so blind to themselves. You know, I've seen parents be very, very harsh on their kids. Stop that. Don't do that. What's wrong with you? You know, um, stop crying. And it's really hard. And I think that's sort of one of the ways that parents sort of push their kids away. Parents are so stressed now. Um, you know, they're yelling at their kids and, you know, particularly since COVID. So I wonder if it would first help kids if parents stopped and said, okay, what's going on inside of me? Because kids become a dumping ground. Yes. You know, a, a person can't go to their boss and yell at them because they're so bad. So somebody comes home and they yell at their three-year-old who doesn't deserve to be yelled at at all. So how can parents sort of recognize what they're doing and stop themselves and, and have a little bit of you know introspection, if you will. So the research that I mentioned earlier about children being born with sensitivity, I didn't finish. The end of the research was that the children who received sensitive, empathic nurturing, exactly the opposite of what you just described to me, um, when they receive sensitive, empathic nurturing, it neutralizes the expression of that gene. So those children can be just as well off as children born without that genetic sensitivity distress. So what that says is that if we're not sensitive and if we're not empathic 
to the pain and the distress and the feelings of our children. It usually means that no one was empathic and sensitive with us. So it's what's called neurotic repetition. If we are cruel inadvertently, because I don't think any parent I've ever treated is cruel intentionally, but they're cruel unconsciously, right? They do, they go through life in an unconscious state. And we repeat what was done with us. If we were criticized as children, if we were verbally abused as children, if we were physically abused as children, if we were subject to addiction, it can be passed on to the next generation. It's called inheritance of acquired characteristics. That's not genetic. That is the experiences that we experience when we're young are repeated in our behavior towards others when we get older. And it's very common for parents to lose their empathy towards their children because no one was empathic towards them. So as hard as it is to get mental health services today, and I know it is, and I know what I'm asking of people, keep trying. Even if you do it online, do it through one of these services online, find someone who can be sensitive and empathic with you as a parent, as a person, as an individual who can understand your pain and losses and experiences of being parented when you were a child. So you can be a better parent to your children. And that's hard. I mean, I think it's hard to look at yourself and and sort of admit that you had a lot of pain and losses because feelings can be so terrifying for people. So we don't we only have a few minutes left. But back to the the guy who's really out of control and is going to go and parents recognize, boy, oh, boy, this is and I've seen these kids not often in my office go. That is a kid who could really do some harm. They're so detached from everything around them. What do you do? Because, you know, we're trying to figure out is, okay, how can we, how can we recognize a red flag in a kid? And then if we do, what do we do about it? It's easy to say, oh, spot them and then take them out of their classroom, but that's not so easy. So if one of these kids came into your office and you identified that they're a danger, what would you do? I really put me on the spot here. Oh, that is a wonderful question. I feel like we need a whole hour to talk about. I wrote a piece about how our country is so invested in the idea of personal freedom uh, and individualism and personal civil rights that we've lost the ability to actually commit people who are really at risk to themselves and to society. Um, Because, you know, in the old days, as you know, you know, remember one flew over the cuckoo's nest and what happened in institutions. Um, And there was a whole movement, the pendulum swung towards the personal and civil rights of those who are mentally ill. And that includes children and adolescents. I mean, you know, you take an adolescent to the emergency room. So I would say, take this child to the emergency room. And I always educate parents. I say the emergency room is not a place where you're going to get treatment for your child. You're just going to get a safe holding place for your child. And, you know, but then you have to have a longer term plan. And sometimes the emergency rooms will help you with that. And sometimes they won't. And that is reality. They will keep your child for 24 hours. And unless your child is actively suicidal in that moment, trying to hang themselves or jump out the window, they will release your child into your care 24 hours later. And this is driving parents crazy because they're going, I brought my child to you so you could help me know what to do. And no one is helping. And so we have a very messed up 
mental health um, triage system in this country. So if you go into the emergency room, you should not just be getting a safe holding space, but you should be getting an exit plan of where your child is going to get treatment and where they're going next, whether it is inpatient, whether it is a therapeutic boarding school, whether it is a day treatment program, whether it is an outpatient therapist. That's just not happening, Meg. And so, and these are some of the things I write about and I rail about. You know, it isn't just, I don't want to put it all on parents. It is a very screwed up system. It really is. And, you know, I was having this conversation with my partner the other day, a woman, and we find ourselves in a position with this really new only in the past five years where we are out of our league. In other words, we have kids coming into it's usually adolescents who are so severely disturbed. We don't know what to do. And we feel, you know, and getting a therapist in some areas is almost impossible because there's a shortage of them. And so we end up thinking, well, what can we do? What can we do? And people complain that doctors use too much medicine and we do, but sometimes we don't have another choice because, and I know all the treatment centers and I try to get kids there, you know, sometimes parents and them, sometimes insurance will pay, sometimes they don't, but it's hard. It's really hard to know what to do. I mean, ideally we'd say, and this used to happen five or 10 years ago, I'd say, okay, here's a great therapist for somebody with your behavior and your personality but we can't do that anymore. So it's really tough. It's really, really tough. If I were an entrepreneur, I mean, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed probably as you are with my practice and my writing, that if I had the bandwidth to live another life and be an entrepreneur too, <laughs> I would start, you know how critical care centers started up? I would start up a fleet of mental health centers where they provide group therapy and team approaches where you can walk in and you can get care services. Um, Because right now, if you go to in New York, the major hospitals have day treatment programs for kids. They are totally booked up. You cannot get into these day treatment programs, but they are the best multidisciplinary approaches for kids with serious mental illness. And even the kids who just need therapy. I mean, they're just booked up. So I'm thinking if I were an entrepreneur, that's what I would do. I know we're not here to talk about that, but that's what I would do. Well, maybe, well, maybe there's somebody listening who is. Maybe. I hope so. <laughs> and you can be their advisor, but you know, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I think a lot of it, unfortunately, might come down to money. But I think, I do think there's a way around it because we have to. You know, I just, as a physician, get so frustrated when people say, well, just identify them and, you know, and then treat them. Good luck with that. We used to have, now I'm not an advocate of state hospitals, but we, you know, there used to be state hospitals that we could put people into. But then, you know, what happened is we had all these new medications come around and people thought, well, just give them medication and we, they don't have to be in a state hospital. That's good. Well, that's a good idea. But a lot of people who are seriously mentally ill don't take their medicine and they don't come in for follow-up. And you know, they live in the woods. It's, so it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's a tough situation. But I will tell you that there's a resource that most parents don't know about, which I always talk about in my books, which is that when therapists go for postgraduate training, meaning every therapist has to be either a social worker, a psychologist, or an MD. 
At that point, they enter into postgraduate programs, which are training programs in psychotherapy or psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic therapy. They are the best of the best because they have to go through years of treatment themselves. It's part of the process and years of training and supervision by senior people. So these are really good training grounds. They are psychoanalytic uh, psychoanalytic institutes and psychotherapy institutes. They exist in almost every major city in this country. Mm-hmm. And they have trainees, th- young therapists who are training to be senior people, who are well supervised. They are low fee therapists. And people don't know about that. So the best of the best you can often get for a very reduced fee because all of these institutes have low fee referral services. So if you know, if you look in, if you're in Cincinnati, if you're in um, San Francisco, if you're in um, you know uh, St. Louis, if you're in any city, look up psychoanalytic training institutes and call them and ask them if they have low fee referral services. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the therapy is as low as $15 a session. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm proud to say my daughter is in that and she's a therapist. She has gone through years and years of postgraduate work and conferences. And now she has, you know, people who work under her who are, she supervises, but but they're a lot cheaper. Erica, our time is up. We we could go off in so many different directions and have an hour-long talk in you know, very different subjects, but I'm so grateful for what you do. You are the best of the best. I would see you if I knew you. You could psychoanalyze me. But um, where can people learn more about you and just give us the titles of your books because everybody needs to read them. So you can look me up at www.comisar.com. And on there, you can actually get links to the books. And the books are Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And the second book is Chicken Little, uh, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, please reach out to me. Yeah. Those are both fabulous books, and I've, I've read them both, and I've given so many away. Well, thank you so much. You have a wonderful day, and I would love to have you back on, and we can continue our wonderful conversation. I would love that, Meg. I love talking to you, and I am. it's a mutual admiration society, mm-hmm. so like-minded people. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, I hope you found my interview with Erica empowering and uplifting. I know many of you parents are afraid for your kids, but don't be. You can make a huge difference in keeping them happy and resilient. Yes, you can. And as I often say, never parent out of fear, but confidence. Now let's go to my points to ponder. One, listen in order to understand your kids. Nothing makes a child feel more loved and secure when a parent seeks to really understand him. So when you're talking to your child, look at him, shut off your devices, and look him in the face when he talks. Don't interrupt him. Even if he says something disturbing, react slowly, it takes discipline, and if something very serious arises, like your kid tells you they're on drugs or pregnant or whatever, 
tell him or her that you need to think things through and that you need to meet with him or her the next day to finish the conversation. This gives you time to process things and to try to understand what's happening and then try to help your child with a plan. But having your kid understand that you have linked arms with him or her and that you understand and you're there to help makes a world of difference. Two, listen to connect with your kids. When kids feel ignored, which they often do now with all the cell phones and iPads and everything, misunderstood or emotionally shut down, they distance themselves from their parents. And when they do this, they detach from parents on some level. Kids feel closer to and trust their parents more when they feel the parent is really interested in them and what they have to say. Three, listen to nurture your kids. Think about it yourself. When a loved one takes the time to ask you a question and listen to your answer without interrupting, how do you feel? You feel loved and you feel cared for and you feel important. You feel that what you say matters. And this not only makes you feel more self-confident, it makes you feel loved. Now, multiply this feeling five-fold and that's exactly how your child feels when you listen. Well, I want to thank my guest Erica Comazar today and I can't tell you how strongly I feel that you parents of kids of any age read her book, Chicken Little, The Sky isn't falling. I promise you'll understand your kids better, you'll feel better about parenting, and you'll feel hopeful. And finally, you're going to grow closer to your kids. Follow Erica on Instagram, Facebook, and her website anywhere you can find her. So let's recap my points to ponder. One, listen in order to understand your kids. Two, listen to connect with your kids. And three, Listen to nurture your kids. All right, everyone, before you go, listen up. The movie Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters is releasing August 1st by Pure Flix. It's fun and uplifting. So go to their website and watch the trailer. And remember, parents, until next time, great kids are raised, not born. 